The Mark Stein Show. And now, here's Mark. The United States State Department has warned American citizens against traveling to Tanzania and advised U.S. citizens in the commercial capital of Dar es Salaam to protect themselves and stay inside. I'm not clear whether the government of Tanzania has uh, warned Tanzanians against traveling to America and advised Tanzanians in, say, New York City uh, to protect themselves and stay inside. But Charles Onyango Obo, a leading East African columnist, I quoted him in After America, in fact. He's a sharp and rather amusing fellow. Mr. Onyango Obo says that whenever the powder keg goes up in Africa, the BBC and CNN fill their airwaves with American commentators purporting to be experts on his continent. So now the powder keg's gone up in America, the BBC and CNN should be filling their airwaves with him and his fellow African pundits because they're experts in failed states. Hmm. June the 3rd, 2020. The State Department's Tanzanian advisory is because of this thing called COVID-19. Remember that? Stay two metres apart, wear a mask, don't leave your home, no gatherings of more than six people, no more than two customers in a store at any one time. Well, forget all that, quote. White supremacy is a lethal public health issue that predates and contributes to COVID-19. Right, dozens of the same American public health experts who were yakking about social distancing and self-quarantine until about 48 hours ago. So white supremacy contributes to COVID-19. Another week and it'll be the sole cause of COVID-19. Is there a vaccine for white supremacy? Can you develop herd immunity other than by rampaging up Fifth Avenue and destroying Prada and Alexander McQueen and all the other haute couture multinationals who've ostentatiously proclaimed their support for Black Lives Matter. The same public health experts who have said for three months that it's too dangerous for you to go to work now say it's perfectly safe for you to go looting and rioting as long as you riot responsibly. The New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene has issued a list of tips for corona-friendly riots. For example, don't yell, because you'll be yelling moistly, as Justin Trudeau would say, and every cry of no justice, no peace risks projecting COVID droplets, so carry a sign instead. Also, says the New York Health Department, use lots of hand sanitizer. I'm not sure how safe it is to use hand sanitizer just before you set Macy's alight. Uh, but I'll seek further guidance on that. COVID-friendly riot protocols apply to the other side too. Assuming there are still any police chiefs in America who aren't taking a knee and ostentatiously proclaiming their solidarity with the mob, these those policemen should not be using tear gas on the rioters. Mark Levine, 
the chairman of the New York City Health Committee. This is the same health commissar who in February was saying, hey, come on out and party at Chinese New Year to congratulate Wuhan on doing a great job of containing this virus. And only last month was saying, oh, it's way too early to talk about permitting people to leave their homes and return to work. That guy, Commissar Levine, has reprimanded the NYPD saying, quote, your use of tear gas is increasing COVID-19 risk because it, one, makes the respiratory tract more susceptible to infection, two, exacerbates existing inflammation, three, makes people cough, unquote. And if rioters start spluttering, the horses used by mounted police as they baton the crowd into submission could come down with COVID and then the Peter types would be all mad and the situation could really spiral out of control. Revolution in a time of corona. I guess we'll learn if global lockdown was necessary now because if the models promoted by Dr. Fauci in Washington and Professor Pantsdown in London are even remotely in the ballpark. There are now super spreaders on the streets of every American city and millions will die. And we'll, back, we'll be back to uh, stories about shortages of ventilators, uh, which have probably all been burnt or stolen by now anyway. Revolution in a time of corona and social media. There are brutal beatings and murders being streamed live on Twitter and Facebook. The riots have killed far more black Americans than, say, the Minneapolis Police Department. And one notices in the video of these gangs attacking storekeepers and pedestrians the presence of uh, a lot of young white women, presumably of the Antifa persuasion. Maybe this is the new white supremacy. White college kids, the polytechnic revolutionary class, trashing black neighborhoods and burning down their businesses. Has any white Antifa type killed a black store owner or black cop yet? As I said on Monday, the lust for chaos is very strong. Among the underclass, it's because you've got nothing to lose. Among the elites, it's because you've got so much. You make more money than you know what to do with. Just for playing a sport or making one crappy movie a year or a dozen episodes of a third-rate sitcom no one will remember two years after it's off the air. It's not really rewarding or satisfying or time-consuming. Why not cheer on the mob? They're a long way away for the moment from where you live. In America, if a hairstylist opens her salon, she goes to jail. If you burn down the salon, sure, you might get arrested, but celebrities and Joe Biden staffers will be lining up to bail you out. How cool is that? To be bailed out by Seth Rogen from Knocked Up because you knocked someone down. Or Steve Carell from The Office. What about those boring people who actually go to The Office? Caught in between the underclass and the overclass are those who keep things going, doing all the unglamorous work necessary for any society to function. They've had a hell of a 2020. We flattened the curve, we flattened the economy, and now we're flattening the neighborhood. Not a lot left, is there? The burning cities are Democrat cities because basically all cities are Democrat. 
The more urbanised, the more left-wing your politics, because life becomes disconnected from a primal understanding of what sustains it, where your water comes from, whether the oil truck can get up your drive without you clearing away the downed tree. Uh, even small cities are Democrat. Even cities too small to have an inner city have drunk deeply of their pathologies. This morning in Burlington, Vermont, the capital of Bernie Stan, the biggest city in the state, population 43,086% white, uh, under 5% black. This morning in Burlington, the Black Lives Matter flag flies over City Hall. This is virtue signaling as survival strategy. Don't burn us down. It didn't work for all those high-end emporia in the fancy downtowns in the big cities. And in fact, yesterday on so-called Blackout Tuesday, when all the businesses largely insulated from being trashed and burned to the ground, the music biz and such like, turned their logos black and expressed solidarity with hashtag Black Lives Matter, the Black Lives Matter guys re reprimanded them for clogging up their Twitter feed because the hashtag is supposed to be for hardcore information uh, about where to go uh, for tonight's riots and what to do when you get there. Not lame-o corporate exhibitionism about how cool it is to turn your upscale brand identity uh, a blank black page with some small white 12-point Times New Roman type about how you stand in solidarity with those fighting for justice by burning down your flagship store on Rodeo Drive. For career Democrat politicians, it's an even more cynical shtick. New York Congressman Elliot Engel, a 73-year-old white male who's been in the House of Representatives for three decades, was out placating the mob and asked if he could address them. He was told there wasn't time. And then he forgot he was on a hot mic. Then I didn't go down the list. And it's just too many folks here. If I, had, if I didn't have a primary, I wouldn't care. Say that again? If I didn't have a primary, I wouldn't care. Don't do that to me. We're not going to do this. We're not going to put it aside. If I didn't have a primary, I wouldn't care. Elliot Engel, the septuagenarian white guy, is being primaried, I see, by someone called Jamal. So you can reach your own conclusions about his rival's age and ethnicity. Because, again, as I noted in After America, this society is now so riven that we do not even give our children the same names. In intra-white guys' disputes, the Democrat governor of New York slammed the Democrat mayor of New York. First... Uh, the NYPD and the mayor did not do their job last night. I believe that. Look at the videos. It was a disgrace. I believe that. Uh, I believe the mayor underestimates the scope of the problem. I think he under underestimates the duration of the problem because it's inarguable, but that it was not addressed last night, right? So facts, okay? This is a glass of water. This is not a glass of milk. It's a fact. There's still facts in life. Yeah. If that de Blasio doesn't shape up, Cuomo will get him banged up in a New York nursing home. Death row for the shuffleboard set. 
There was talk after that about whether the governor has the power to remove the mayor. The last time any New York governor tried exercising that power was 1932, when Governor Franklin D. Roosevelt forced out Mayor James J. Walker. Do you remember Jimmy Walker, appallingly corrupt, attacked by the Cardinal Archbishop of New York for his hookers and girly magazines? But he did write a big hit song. Will you love me in December as you do in May? Will you love me in the good old-fashioned way? When my hair has all turned gray, will you kiss me then and say that you love me in December as you do, 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 do in May? Will you love me in December as you do in May? For Joe Biden, the question is, will they love him in November as they do in June? The May polls were phenomenal for him, although uh, he may not actually be aware of that. Uh, And of course, Trump is the great poll bucker anyway. Up to a point, uh, four years ago, May 2016, Trump was actually ahead of Hillary Clinton. He's now running as the law and order candidate. That's usually what a challenger does, as Nixon did in 68. The incumbent is supposed to run on peace and prosperity, but right now there's neither. If you're a deep stater, you've learned a lesson. All that stuff with getting MI6 agents and Maltese professors and Australian high commissioners to set a wilderness of mirrors, five-eyes spook operation in motion. Way too complicated. Who can follow all that Russia collusion stuff? Way better to cry havoc, let's slip the dogs of war, burn it all down and sit back and watch. And now, from the land where everything is policed except crime... Good evening, all. It's your Brit Wanker Copper of the Day. I talked last week about the difference between American policing and UK policing, which is basically that in the latter, the constables can't kill you even if they want to, which is part of the reason they're wankers. They can't do the cool paramilitary robocop stuff like you see on American TV. So... Partially in response, they become especially officious minor bureaucrats, which is what police are, uh, as too many conservatives are inclined to forget they're bureaucrats. So they chastise you without end for ever more footling alleged infractions. That northern English bloke who uh, forced six constables out of his home under the barrage of his swearing... Uh, which was impressive, that encounter would have ended a lot sooner in America and not well for the guy. The contrast uh, was visible this week in the same news story, the death of George Floyd. On Monday, three English teenagers were arrested. What for? Well, they posted a picture on Snapchat of them reenacting the demise of Mr. Floyd. That's to say one lay on the ground, one put his knee on him, and the third Snapchatted the pic to the internet under the caption police brutality. The useless wanker English coppers then collared the lads, explaining it thus, that the trio had been arrested, quote, on suspicion of sending communications causing anxiety and distress. The police 
are treating it as a hate crime, even though it's not clear which favoured victim group the guys hate. The heading police brutality suggests that they take a low view of the coppers. So possibly police are now a recognised victim group under English law, and the police arrested these three lads for causing anxiety and distress to themselves. Making another person anxious and distressed is not, in fact, a crime in England. And if the police can arrest you for that, then there is no limit to their powers. One should, I suppose, be grateful that, unlike in Minneapolis, the coppers can arrest you without causing your death. But in the long run, in terms of a free society, this police action, if not as lethal, is profoundly disturbing. We are losing the spirit of liberty. And in fact, uh, the contrasting scenes from either side of the Atlantic are related. If you do not have a culture in which people are free to... Uh, express themselves in ways that make other people anxious and distressed, if they cannot speak, if they cannot make stupid Snapchat videos, then the only alternative is what you see on the other side of the Atlantic uh, to go rampaging around burning and looting and bombing. Less speech, more violence. It's not difficult. I would add another point, too. These three are kids. There's a bicycle in the picture. So we're talking about boys still at the bike riding age. When kids run around outside, for generations they have reenacted the conflicts of the age, playing cowboys and Indians, for example. After the Second World War, for two, three decades, British lads ran around playing the Allies versus the Nazis in the gardens of suburban cul-de-sacs. It may be regrettable that the epic battles of the American frontier or of occupied Europe have been abandoned for reenactments of incipient civil war scenes learned from Twitter. But it should not be surprising. Sit back, relax, and join Mark Stein each evening for the latest chapter of our newest tale for our time, G.K. Chesterton's famous novel, The Man Who Was Thursday. Undercover policemen pose as anarchists, and undercover poets pose as undercover policemen in this metaphysical thriller. Tune into Stein Online nightly to listen to the serialization in real time. Mark Stein Club members can listen to the whole back catalog of Tales for Our Time by going to www.steinonline.com TFOT. The Mark Stein Club presents The Hundred Years Ago Show. Hungary gets shrunk, Ohio can't get drunk, and no legislation without punctuation. It's June 1920. A hundred years from today. Your world news update, the Treaty of Trianon has been signed at Versailles by Britain, France, Italy, and other victorious allies, and under duress by the Hungarian delegation. Under the treaty, Hungary will lose nearly three-quarters of her territory and 60% of her population to four neighbouring states, Austria, Romania, and the new nations of Czechoslovakia and Yugoslavia.
President Woodrow Wilson's request to Congress to approve an American mandate over Armenia, similar to the new British and French mandates over former Ottoman Empire provinces in the Levant and Mesopotamia, has been rejected by the US Senate 52 to 23. In what was possibly a tit-for-tat move, for the first time in American history, a president has vetoed a bill for bad grammar. Mr Wilson rejected legislation forbidding the transportation of licentious motion pictures across state lines on the grounds that the phrase subject to the jurisdiction thereof was in the wrong place in the sentence. The Knights of the Ku Klux Klan have announced that they have hired the Southern Publicity Association to lead a recruitment drive for new members. The SPA is headed by the Klan's Imperial Wizard, E.Y. Clark Jr., and Miss Bessie Tyler, who will receive 80% of each new member's initiation fee and are believed to be big investors in companies that manufacture Klansmen's robes. Although Mr. Clark is married, he and Miss Tyler were found in flagrante by Atlanta police last year, charged with disorderly conduct and fined for the possession of whiskey. They also run publicity for the anti-saloon league. Give me a chance to vote and get some fellows goats. Give me the right to search. The approval of 36 American states are necessary to ratify a constitutional amendment granting women the right to vote. So far, 35 states have said yes, but Delaware has declined to provide the margin of victory. To the dismay of the women's suffrage movement, its Senate rejected the 19th Amendment by 24 votes to 10. And don't you know, last week I went out to a suffragette meeting and I spoke for the suffragists. I said, give us the chance to vote. Let the women vote. Send us to the polls. Why don't you send us to the polls? And a fresh man in the audience yelled out, Yes, send them to the polls, to the North and South Poles. In other constitutional amendment news, the Supreme Court has ruled that Ohio cannot hold a referendum to reverse its ratification of the 18th Amendment on the prohibition of alcohol, on the grounds that once an amendment has been ratified, it is part of the Constitution and cannot be unamended except by a new amendment by 36 states removing it. Ohio was the 36th to approve and therefore the state that passed the amendment. But it was last year and they would dearly like to fall off the wagon. Julia A. Moore, once famed as the sweet singer of Michigan and the greatest bad poet of her age, has died at 72. Her famously bad rhymes and poor sense of metre won her the admiration of, among others, Mark Twain. Her husband was less amused and eventually forbade her to publish verse or appear on stage. 
However, since his death six years ago, the widowed Mrs. Moore had been republishing her work. It seems appropriate to mark her passing with one of the many poems she penned to mark the death of others. One morning in April, a short time ago, Libby was active and gay. Her saviour called her, she had to go, ere the close of that pleasant day. While eating dinner, this dear little child was choked on a piece of beef. Doctors came, tried their skill a while, but none could give relief. And that's the way of the world. June 1920. A hundred years from today. A hundred years from today. Oh, you know what this music means. Mark's Mailbox is on the air. Sabre Mike Carroll. Uh, I think uh, part of that might actually just be an honorific, unless uh, right now, even as I speak, Mike is doing Hatcheturian's famous sabre dance. Uh, sabre Mike Carroll from New York State, who joined the Mark Stein Club just last month, and we're delighted to have him, says, Speaking of Armenia, as we were just a moment ago, I think the defining image of the vapid and moronic nature of these, quote, protests against, quote, racism is the vandalized monument dedicated to victims of the Armenian genocide. Indeed, Mike, the best way to show your opposition to uh, ethnic violence is by trashing a monument to the victims of genocide. We are a very stupid society, astonishingly stupid, and I don't mean just the snarling feral mob from the dark underbelly, but the children of the elites are out on the streets playing games, playing games like those three English lads, but in the hope that they can somehow will a play revolution into the real thing. Could the average American college student tell you what the Armenian genocide was? Who, who committed the um, Armenian genocide? Uh, white racist Americans? Confederate generals? Joe Biden in his first 30 years in the Senate before he decided to abandon all his experience and get with the AOC program? Close, close, all good answers, and I certainly admire your spirit. But who actually did it? In what century? Oh, and how about where is Armenia? Armenia must know something after all these six-year bachelor degrees, right? This is what I think makes the situation so intractable. We have moronized two, possibly by now three generations, to the point where I think any solution to the scenes on the street, any real solution, is impossible. We all basically know that, don't we? We all know that the most likely outcomes are A, things quieten down because everyone gets a bit bored and goes home, or it rains one night. Uh, and everyone just packs it in until the next spark lights up the powder keg, or B, everything unravels, which is more of a possibility than it once was, or C, there are just a few pointless gestures, a summit of community leaders, more minority characters in crap superhero movies, even more idiotic white men in detergent commercials. But no one seriously expects 
a true, grand, lasting solution to what's going on. Be honest. Large numbers of the people on the street hate America. Whether they hate it for killing George Floyd or hate it for perpetrating the Armenian genocide or hate it because they were traumatised by hearing Kate Smith sing God Bless America before she got vaporised doesn't really matter. We live in a society with less and less agreed reality and with a political class and a cultural class and an academic class and a commercial class, that's to say not just Joe Biden, but Hollywood and Harvard and Facebook and Starbucks that are all in on pandering to the most lurid visions of that perceived reality. And in consequence, there are millions and millions of ordinary people who aren't out in the streets, who aren't rioting, but for whom, nevertheless, their entire civilizational inheritance has no real purchase on them, because even if they're not paying attention, they understand from the general tenor of the Super Bowl ads uh, to the watery bromides appended to the paper cup of their macchiato, that their entire civilizational inheritance is somehow unrespectable. And that is only going to get worse because we spend all our time circling around subjects uh, that can never be discussed honestly, especially on race. Think of the time we spend on this topic mostly talking around it in the uh, same old, worn-out clichés. And imagine if we didn't all the time that would be freed up to talk about other things. Why, there might even be a sporting chance we'd know what the Armenian genocide was before we tore down the monument. And now, Stein Online presents Mark Stein's Song of the Week. On Monday, I said that most of us non-Americans don't really know anything about Minneapolis except what we glimpsed in the opening titles of the Mary Tyler Moore show. And I sang a couple of parody lines for the theme song. I don't really like to think of Ted Baxter covering Antifa mobs torching the entire city. And actually, I don't really like to do parodies of the theme because the original is so good. The man singing it there is also the guy who wrote it, Sonny Curtis. He's a rock and roller. He was a boyhood chum of Buddy Holly in Lubbock, Texas, played guitar with Buddy in the mid-50s. They opened for Elvis. And then came that terrible plane crash. Sonny got drafted, and on a three-day leave from the Army, ran into his fellow former cricket, Jerry Allison, who was now drumming for the Everly Brothers. Sonny sang him a song he'd written... And Jerry said, you got to get that to Don and Phil. 
and the Everlys recorded it that weekend. Walk right back to me this minute Bring your love to me, don't send it I'm so lonesome every day Sonny Curtis walked right back to the army and when he came out he had a new song. a much-covered number. The Clash, Bruce Springsteen, The Grateful Dead, but those are the guys who made it a hit, the Bobby Fuller Four. There followed something of a drought hit-wise for Sonny Curtis, and then in 1970 came a new sitcom created for Mary Tyler Moore by James L. Brooks and this chap, Alan Burns. Arthur Price, Mary's manager and the vice president of of, uh, this was all much too easy. Manager of Andy Williams and other people. He said, uh, he called us up one day and he said, there's this guy named Sonny Curtis and he used to play with uh, Buddy Holly and the Crickets. He's a guitar player and he's a songwriter. A friend of mine who's from Nashville, Doug Gilmore, came to my house one morning. He was working with Mary Tyler Moore's agency and he came to my house one morning and said, uh, would you like it? I shot at the Mary Tyler Moore show. They're going to do a sitcom with her. I said, why, sure. That took about two seconds for me to figure that out. (laughs) And uh, he left me a a little four-page format that told what the show was going to be like. And I actually wrote the song in about two hours. And I called him and said, who do I sing this to? And he sent me over to CBS uh, uh, studios. And Sonny Curtis came over, sat in their office, opened up his guitar case, put the case on the floor, put his lyric on the floor, and sang. Love is all around. Oh, one, two, three, four. Who can turn the world on with her smile? Yeah. Who can take a nothing day and suddenly make it all seem worthwhile? Well, it's you, girl, and you should know it. With each glance and every little movement you show it Love is all around, no need to waste it You can down the town, why don't you take it? You're gonna make it after all And it was perfect. I mean, we didn't change a word. It was exactly what we were looking for, and we said, Sonny, you got the job. And he said, huh? It's the easiest gig I ever had. He, he just couldn't believe it, that, that we, we just bought it, just like that. It was, it was so easy. And Jim and I, know, at that time in particular, didn't know, that much, know all that much about music, but we knew what was going to be right for the show, and that was it. It was so right, and it said the character. And Sonny Curtis's version is just right, too. But with a good song, lots of other people want to do it. Sammy Davis Jr. alone made two records, a semi-ballad and a disco version. You're the one most likely to succeed. have got the looks and charm And babe, you know that is all you need All the men around 
us about the sexy look was written by Sonny Curtis, although it never seems to me to sit quite so perfectly with the show, uh, which may be why they never used it on TV. Uh, Sammy actually cleaned up Sonny's rhymes there. The full-length song is all pure rhymes. Love is all around, no need to fake it. You can have the town, why don't you take it? You're going to make it. Uh, but with the compression required of TV themes, Sonny telescoped his song into an off-rhyme. No need to waste it, why don't you take it? So Sammy actually put back a proper rhyme into the song there. No need to waste it, come on, let's taste it. You gotta hand it to Sonny Curtis. There is no other composer in pop music history to get his song recorded by both Sammy Davis and Joan Jett. like that version. Now, the Mary Tyler Moore Show is about a woman who moves to Minneapolis and the town and uh, the state are not without their musical greats. The Andrews sisters, Bob Dylan, Prince, Tiny Tim. So has any Minneapolis musician ever sung Love is All Around? Well, here's a band from St. Paul. Husker Du. I knew the location of the studio they did that in, and I was on the streets of the Twin Cities tonight. I think I'd know I'd be taking my Molotov cocktail. But the song survived. Words and music by Sonny Curtis. Love is all around, no need to waste it. You can now the town, why don't you take it? You're gonna make it after all. Love is all around. You take it all. You're gonna make it after all. Yeah! <laughs> Thank you very much. A terrific TV theme and wonderfully orchestrated on the show by the guy who did a lot of the MTM music, Patrick Williams. Pat was a marvelous man, very talented. He conducted Sinatra's two duet albums in the 90s and made a lovely instrumental album called Sinatra Land and his work on Mary Tyler Moore shows taught me something because I noticed that the opening theme and the closing theme were the same piece of music but differently scored differently arranged because the show is to go somewhere have an arc have a narrative start at point A and wind up emotionally at point B or C or wherever. So if you have exactly the same arrangement of the theme music at the end as at the beginning, it sounds like you've been treading water and the show's gone nowhere, which is one reason why the Mark Stein show has the same piece of music, but 
because I learned from uh, what Pat Williams did on Mary Tyler Moore, but with an intro arrangement that differs from the outro arrangement. Well, that's normally what we do. Today we're going to vary it. Do check out our Song of the Week in essay form right here at Stein Online every Sunday, around about 6 p.m. North American Eastern Time. That's 10 p.m. Greenwich Mean Time. You'll have to work it out uh, from there. And I will be back uh, later this evening with the latest episode of my serialization of G.K. Chesterton, The Man Who Was Thursday. And to close us out, here is Pat Williams' splendid arrangement of Sonny Curtis's song that concluded every episode in season one of The Mary Tyler Moore Show. Stay safe, stay free. Join us next time for another edition of The Mark Stein Show. The Mark Stein Show is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. All rights reserved.